Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we have Caridades Fitch back on the show to talk about her book, Mitchell and Trask's Hedwig and the Angry Inch, out from Rutledge. Caridad, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Andy. Lovely to be back. Yeah, you're, you're our first repeat guest, so I feel like that's uh, something of a milestone. Do I get a gold star? <laughs> you Absolutely. It's in the mail. <laughs> Um, so this book is part of a series called the Fourth Wall series uh, from Rutledge, which uh, I've I've seen described as sort of like the thirty three and a third series, but for plays and musicals. So how did you get connected with uh, with Rutledge, and how did you kind of get the idea for this project? Uh, I had been admiring this series for a while. Um, it's still a relatively new series, uh, and I think. When I was reading some of the books in it, uh, the one that initially caught my eye was Catherine Love's book uh, on Tim Crouch's An Oak Tree, which is a piece that I've written about before. So I And I was teaching a class in dramaturgy at NYU, and I thought, oh, I'll use Catherine's book as a companion piece to, we were studying Tim's work. So, And then I just became super interested in the series, and I and I am a big fan of the Theory 3 and a Third series. Uh, and so I was like, oh, this is just like that, it feels like, you know. But I, I didn't know if that was my hunch or just true. So uh, what I did is I emailed um, the senior editor for the series, Ben Piggott at Rutledge. And I was like, hey, Ben, uh, we haven't officially met, but I really love this series and I'd love to write for it. And can I pitch you some ideas? And he he emailed me right away, and he was like, "Oh, this is this would be awesome to have you in the series." So it was kind of like a very easy ask in a weird way. And then I pitched him about five things because um, I wasn't sure what you know they plan in advance, and I wasn't sure what they were after. Um, so I pitched a bunch of stuff. I pitched like plays, but. Uh, I always wanted to write about Hedwig. I, you know, I've, I love the show so much. And, uh, and I'd been, I thought I'd write a long form essay, um, some years ago and then never happened. So, so I just put it on the list kind of whimsically because I, I actually didn't think they'd say yes to that one. Uh, I thought they'd, you know, go for something a little more, I don't know, serious, I suppose. Although I think mm-hmm. Hedwig is very serious. So, um, so, and then I got an email right back and Ben said, I totally want you to write about Hedwig. And I was like, yay. <laughs> so it was like, it was like serendipitous. I mean, it was like something I've wanted to write about for a long time, getting the yes from Rutledge. And then I had a very, you know, we put it into motion right away. We signed the contracts and I got to writing and yeah, it was pretty easy breezy on that end. Uh, yeah. And it, it makes me, and also I'd never written, I've written all sorts of things obviously. And I've also edited and co-authored books and stuff like that, but I never actually 
for real just sat down and kind of said, this is like my book and <laughs> here I go. Uh, and so it was also a dare to myself. I really wanted to figure out if I could do that. Uh, even though they're little books, uh, I don't mind that they're little books. Uh, and and I also thought it would be a chance to do the kind of writing that I sometimes save for for essays, like on HowlRound or American Theater, it's if I didn't do it in a different form. Uh, so, yeah, so it was like a really exciting project to dive into. And I, in some ways, I felt like it wrote itself. Yeah, when when I just look at like your CV, it makes me tired. <laughs> I feel like you're doing so many things all the time. Um, are you, do you like have a daily writing practice? Do you write every day or, you know, do you write kind of project by project? Like what's your, what's your kind of workflow? Uh, my workflow depends. Uh, I don't have a daily writing practice. I mean, my, my, well, I do Twitter, <laughs> Twitter is my daily <laughs> writing practice. And I think email is my daily writing practice. Uh, but I don't, um, I'm not one of those people that does like big journals of stuff. If it's full of notes, I, I take notes when I think I'm going to be writing a play or or a book or whatever and so so that's how that happens sometimes i get like ideas for stuff and i'm like oh that should be in this form like like uh, two months ago when i emailed american theater magazine i was like i feel an essay coming on <laughs> i feel an essay coming on uh you know and because sometimes that happens and i wake up and i'm like yeah. an essay has to happen today and so and so so sometimes it's like that. And sometimes people ask me like how round last month asked me, can you write something for us? And so I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Like there were ideas that I'd been teasing out in the American theater. I say that I hadn't kind of, I wanted to reformulate. So, so there's stuff like that, but really it just depends. Like right now I'm in them. I've been writing like a play a month this year, which is a little bit unusual. Yeah. Uh, even for you, that's a lot. <laughs> for me, that's a lot. And uh, yeah. two of them, Two, well, three, I guess three of them technically are commissions or adaptations. So, so that requires a different headspace for me. Um, and then the other is my stuff. So, so and now, and now I'm embarking on something new that it's mine and um, kind of just fiddling really, but, but trying to locate what the shape for it will be. I, I know it's going to be a play of some kind, how it, how it materializes. I'm not sure yet, but teasing out ideas that I've been kind of developing from the other works and trying to find a new form for them. Uh, and in the middle of all this, uh, the film that I co-wrote that it's based on my play, uh, Fugitive Dreams is premiering at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal later this summer. So suddenly, you know, kind of labor of love project <laughs> uh, is kind of having a premiere, you know? And so, so I'm having to sort of, part of my brain is also thinking about like, Oh, should I be writing a film right now? Should I be writing another film <laughs> or should I stick to the land of play? So, yeah, so I'm in that place a little bit of like probably trying to do several things at once, but also to answer your question, one thing at a time. That's how I work best. And I have always one thing at a time and then a couple of things on the back burner that I'm stewing and brewing and, and then trying to make space for. Uh, and when I'm writing a play, uh, I try to just carve out that space and write, 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 write until I get to the end. Um, no. And then if I have like strict deadlines on stuff, I'm very good about turning stuff in. I, I feel, um, I've, I've rarely, I don't think I've ever missed a deadline. So I like to, to kind of, when I have a deadline, I like to get it done. I usually like to get it done early. So, so, 
you know, I, I try to pull the, what is that trick Simon Stevens talks about when he says he has a deadline and then he, he turns it in to himself two weeks early so that a, wow. he feels, a, he feels super accomplished and B, he can then look at it for two weeks <laughs> after uh-huh. he's written it. So, so I, I sort of work in a similar manner. I kind of like, there's a deadline and then I kind of go, how can I turn it even earlier? Uh, to kind of then be able to sit with it. Because I think the process of sitting with work is really important because um, it gives you critical distance. Uh, but you also have the beauty and joy of following an idea through and getting to end of play or end of book or whatever you're making. Um, so, yeah. My uh, my college playwriting professor was Ken Urban. And uh, I once finished a play and I sent him a draft and then I, I sent him like another draft, like later that day, and then another draft two days later. And he eventually emailed back and was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share my thoughts about your work, but uh, maybe just let it sit for a while before you send it over. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so getting back to this project, your book about Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, I rewatched the, the film of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the film adaptation, also mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, directed by uh, uh, John Cameron Mitchell. Right. Um, and and I was struck simultaneously by how, I mean, it came out in 2001, and it's both incredibly ahead of its time and incredibly of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you first saw Hedwig, I think you saw it in 98, did you feel like you were seeing something out of the future? <laughs> I think. I think I was seeing something that spoke to the past, like because of the, the cocktail that is Hedvig as a, as a theater piece. Like it's, you know, it's, it's recalling seventies glam. Uh, also seventies glam UK, but also seventies glam and punk New York. And, uh, and it's kind of pushing it into the nineties to late nineties. Um, I, it felt like an interesting fusion in terms of the future. I just felt like it was, I think what's indelible about the piece is that it's, and one of the brilliant things about it is I think that it's completely unsettled in every way. So, so what I, I think what I gravitated toward just originally was that it was like super, it was like, it's very much a musical. Like it's, and I think sometimes people forget that and it's like, it's totally a musical. Uh, and so it has things about it that are very conventional in a way, but it's also like cabaret theater. And it's also like what we would call a gig theater these days. Um, and it's, and it's also just an incredible vehicle for a performer and for performers, you know, but, but I think centrally for the, for the uh, performer playing Hedwig. So I think that, it felt like a, a beautiful fusion of a lot of things and also uh, a kind of calling back to a sort of a different time in New York and a different time in the world. So, so I feel like it sits in a very interesting place as a piece of theater. Um, and also, in fact, in terms of its pointing toward the future, certainly in terms of thinking about how we think about genderqueer identities, uh, in that sense, yes, but I think that because the piece is so specific in terms of its story, um, uh, I think it troubles that arena in an interesting way. Uh, so yeah, so it was just like galvanizing and super dirty and kind of crummy space and, you know, and I mean, the original space it was done in, it was just super divey and the vibe was like a divey vibe and, and, um, uh, 
it felt like you were like at a, you know, at a like, where am I? What what concert is this? And who is this person? And, you know, so I thought there was something a little bit audacious about and smart, I think, about the way it was originally presented and how it's transformed over the years uh, into a, a glossier, I suppose, product, uh, especially the Broadway version. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's also, I think, the film is a such a beautifully strange uh, time capsule. Uh, it's also like the John, hair and the costumes the hair, are the hair so two thousand one. It's so two thousand one, but it's also like John refining. Like st- he had, he had performed the show so many times, or you know, so he was refining mm-hmm. some stuff from all the different performances and kind of you know obviously solidifying it on film. Uh, yeah, and it's and it's just so. Um, I think it was was it was it his first film? I'm trying to remember, it might have been. So it's also him sure. as a him as I think it's him as a first time filmmaker because I think after that he did the yeah. sort of sex the sex film and then <laughs> and then did Rabbit Hole. And, um, yeah, so so it's also him as a first time filmmaker, which I think as a first time film, it's a kind of a brilliant to be able to handle all the different tonal things that are happening in that film and also the the visual vocabulary that the film employs uh, is really exciting. Yeah, it's I, I love first films. I feel like they're like all often the, the 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 sort of charm of a filmmaker trying to figure out how to do shot composition, how to direct actors to act on film, especially when they're coming out of the world of theater. I think that's often so exciting. And and I feel like this is a really exciting first film too. And you're you're you kind of get to see John Cameron Mitchell allowing the story to kind of breathe a little bit in the expanded space that you're allotted through film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. And it's also the songs take on a different tenor because they're not live. And so where we understand them as music videos, you know what I mean? And in terms mm-hmm. of that format, uh, uh, and I think they, you know, uh, John does a good job of, in the film of trying to make it feel like it's live. Like he's trying to capture some of that in the, in the energy yeah. of the movie. Um, but yeah, but it's tricky. Cause I think there are things about the, for example, the ending of the show that on stage um, it's pretty galvanizing. And I think on film is, but in a different way, I find, I find the film very mournful actually mm-hmm. and mysterious. Um, whereas I think in the theater, the the last sort of 10 minutes or so are electrifying and you're kind of just pumping your fists and, you know, and you yeah. just feel like the world's going to break open and hooray and like whatever's going to happen. Uh, so it's interesting because I think the film does a, does a very, um, uh, I think an interesting uh, dramaturgical choice of actually leaving us in a place of profound ambiguity with the material, uh, I think that's a very brave, it's a very brave ending in the film. And, and uh, I admire that immensely. It also made me rethink, obviously in writing about it, uh, made me rethink about how the play works uh, as a piece of theater and how, how the journey that the play sort of charts, uh, you know, how do we reckon with it over time? 
Uh, it's one of the luxuries of, of like theater pieces that last for a long time is that you get to kind of see how it moves through time, uh, but also how that singular story, which is a very unique and idiosyncratic story, sort of survives uh, multiple rereadings and multiple viewings and listenings. So speaking of how the piece kind of moved through time, um, it premiered, well, it was first workshopped, I think, around 94, and then finally premiered in 98. Uh, and it was very much a kind of New York downtown show. Um, it, it, I don't think it actually was on the Lower East Side, but it was cert- certainly felt like a Lower East Side <laughs> uh, piece. Uh, right. Could you describe kind of where the scene was at that time? Oh, the scene was, you know, Giuliani is in power as a mayor. <laughs> Giuliani's a mayor and this Trudy was really changing. We're sort of on the cusp really of... Um, a lot of things that we're going through now, actually. Uh, um, so, and the, you know, the, this Hedwig came out of workshops at Squeezebox, which was a, a, a rock and roll sort of drag punk uh, uh, bar at Don Hills. So Don Hills sort of converted into Squeezebox on certain nights. So it came out of a scene of looking at drag through the punk movement, uh, which was a, was kind of a new thing. Uh, and so I think that it was sort of looking at a different kind of rebellion, you know, in the book I talk about, uh, how do we reclaim the commons? And I think that the part of that, the piece, uh, and where it was coming from and how it sort of premiered and what it was speaking to was actually about that reclamation uh, which I think is one of the reasons I think it remains um, an exciting piece still uh, in all its weirdness, uh, because it's, it is trying to reclaim a sense of uh, unstable, unsettled, restless uh, commons that, that where, everyone, where everyone is allowed, basically, to exist. So, so I think that it, it serves that function in terms of downtown. I mean, it's a premiered at the Jane Street, um, uh, which was a converted ballroom, basically, at the Jane, Jane Hotel. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's, uh, that space later was used a couple of times for some other shows, but it didn't, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if it was real estate, but it didn't quite survive. But, um, but certainly Hedwig was what put it on the map. So, yeah, and it was just, uh, like, super queer and super fun and, and, really it was like an event you know it was like you felt you weren't going to the theater you felt you were going to an event so i think in terms of recalibrating an audience's response to a show uh, it it sort of captured the idea of going to a concert you know and i think that in a different way than something like rocky horror which has a whole kind of cult following i think that you know had sort of functions differently because i think it's um uh, you feel like whoever's going to perform the show as, as Hedvig is going to guide the sort of vibe and the tenor of how the piece works. Right. So within the structure that, that John has given in the libretto and Stephen has in terms of the lyrics uh, and the music. So I feel like there's something in the, you're taking the energy of that performer, which I think is different from, other shows where where the libretto is not so singularly 
uh, centered on on an individual. Right. So it's almost so, yeah. a one man show. Almost, almost a one person show. <laughs> yeah, one person show. Right, one right, person. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. Um, ha, so speaking of kind of the the multiple interpretations that whoever that that central person uh, is, um, do you have any idea like how many different leads you've seen in the show? Oh my heavens, I've seen many. I mean, I saw John, and then I saw uh, Michael Servis do it uh, in LA and also in New York. I never got to see Ali Sheedy do it, and I kicking myself because um, yeah. I read those reviews, and also because I was just fascinated by the idea of having like a, a female, a cisgender female perform that piece. So it was like a really fascinating thing, uh, and I know at one time Sandra Bernhardt was floated. You know, they asked her to do it, and you know, all of it, and that never happened, but. Man, I would have in my head. I would love to see that production. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and I and I know that Lena Hall has performed it um, instead of taking the Eatsock role. Um, she has performed Hedwig, and um, and I, so I've never seen Lena do it, but I've have seen it around the country, like in Columbus, Ohio, and you know, in Houston, and like you know, so I've seen it in other configurations and a much more kind of like smaller theater. Uh, situations and which has been exciting because I think it, it, it kind of merits. I think once the show was kind of a thing and it had a name and it was everybody was doing it, which is awesome. Uh, trying to lo- find those productions that were less uh, glamorous or less uh, official in a way, uh, even though they were licensed, um, was harder to find. So, so yeah. So I, I saw a bunch of stuff, you know, regionally with the show just as a fan and, and as somebody that I, and at the time knowing, well, not knowing that I write a book, but I uh, knowing that, Oh, I'd like to write a book someday. <laughs> you know, that was sort of mm-hmm. in the back of my mind. I'd like to write a book someday about this. And I'm taking sort of notes in my head about how that's going to happen. And then, so I think that part of it has to do with filtering all of that when it came time to the writing of the book, like a sort of like, Oh, I've, I've sort of witnessed a lot of different versions of this with bigger budgets, with little budgets, with medium budgets, and uh, with different kinds of performers, but also performers of different shapes and sizes in the role. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, I always go back to kind of the first time seeing it because the imprint was so strong. And also, the, obviously, the film is sort of a record of its own uh, it has its own identity and, and it lives forever because it's film. So, so, so revisiting that and compare it to the show. Uh, and of course, listening to the, the various uh, cast albums uh, that were done, but also the covers, uh, uh, the covers record, Wig in a Box, um, which has some really interesting cover versions. So, so yeah, so just been living with a piece for a long time and also thinking about how it, how it sort of reconfigures itself every time uh, that you view it and that you even listen to those songs, you know, those songs, their songs are so well built and they just kick in and they kick in and they just hit your heart. Uh, And, um, and there's no denying them. So I think it's kind of like a perfectly constructed uh, series of songs in terms of just the dramaturgy of the plot um, and barely smartly done. So I won't ask you the very obvious interviewer question uh, following up on that. I, I won't ask you which has been your favorite 
uh, Hedwig, but I will ask you, what are some aspects of that character that you feel like have been revealed to you by different interpretations that you've seen? Uh, uh, the first word that comes to mind is a kind of selfishness, you know, the character, yeah. I think that people forget that this character, unless they re-encounter the character, they forget that the character is very kind of, uh, well, it's deeply wounded, right? Like physically, but also like emotionally. Mm-hmm. So, so that there's a, there's a tremendous armor to this character and, uh, that the performer has to play with. And, and I think that I've seen some performers be more vulnerable, right, within that armor. And I've seen some performers be completely um, steadfast in as being as guarded as possible and in wearing the mask as tightly as possible with this character until the, until the kind of stripping and the reveal happens toward the end. Um, and the defiance of that character. So, so I feel like the, that color sort of comes up. I think there's also a sort of mischief, obviously a mischievousness to this per- character and a, uh, the fact that it's written built in that it can be improvisational so that there are jokes that are written in, but there's also room for the performer to elaborate and deal with the audience and kind of figure out how they're going to, how they're going to like sit in somebody's lap and talk to them. And like, you know, so there's stuff that's, that depends on how improvisational the actor is, right? Some actors are less so, so I think they have more stuff sort of pre-scripted on their back pocket, and other performers really know how to work a room and and figure out how they're going to play with the audience. Uh, So it's such an an elemental nature of the show, so that sense of mischief and that sense of trouble, uh, that's that's part of it. Um, Also, I think vocally, uh, I've heard, like, some performers be much more, you know, rock and roll about it, like super rock and roll about it, uh, and and leaning more toward the punk element of the show. And I've seen other performers be, I wouldn't say Broadway because that feels like pejorative, but but more like. Um, <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? Like more kind of like I'm yeah, doing sure. a song and I'm hitting the notes and I'm doing the thing, you know. And so I feel yeah. like so and I've seen people do that, you know, where they're they're kind of delivering the, the material um, well. Do you know what I mean? But without yeah. that kind of uh, the roughness and the grit that you actually need to, I think, perform this music and, and to understand where it's coming from. I understand that you're uh, a legend of the avant-garde, but there are many people who would not consider it an insult to be told that they sound like they could be on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that... No, it, I understand what you is, mean, though. There's, yeah, you can do it in a more rough rock and roll way, or you can do it in a more polished, uh, you know, musical polished. theater Polish, yeah, it has to do yeah. with polish, yeah, and it has to do with phrasing, and it has to do with uh, the cadence of the material, and... Uh, allowing, I think allowing it to be, allowing it to not be on, on the note every time, really, basically is what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to talk about the question of gender in the piece. Uh, Hedwig has often been described by critics as, as a trans woman, but John Cameron Mitchell uh, rejects that and says that Hedwig is a genderqueer character with a gender all her own. Why does that distinction matter in the context of the show? Uh, it matters because I think that the identity of the character, the the sex change operation is a forced sex change operation. Um, I mean, you know, Hansel goes along with it, 
but but because he wants to get married and get out of the east but uh east germany but but i but there's a the enforced nature of that means that the the character is not consenting or willing to be transformed so there's sort of a the root of trouble in that show is very interesting and kind of just obviously dislocating the fact that the sex change operation is botched then becomes a whole different animal. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. Hedwig is neither is by is by born biologically male transformed, but not transformed fully and is left in a, in a, in an in-between state, right? And a completely in-between, but also like an, an anomalous state, a kind of freakish, freakish state, yeah? So I think that there's a, in terms of literally, you know, the, the vagina is closed instead of open. So I feel like there's a, the, the characters put into, I mean, a lot of the show is about, you know, this person trying to figure out, well, who the hell am I? <laughs> who the hell am I now? What am I going to do with myself? And, like, how am I going to reckon with, with what has happened to my body, right? So, and I think through that, there's also the psychological story that's being told. And through that, uh, Plato's Symposium and thinking about the idea of third sex and how does third sex exist and uh, a character sort of trying to figure that out for themselves, but also realizing that there's actually nobody like them, like just on a physical level. So, so I think that that puts the character in a very unique space. And uh, rather than somebody who's willfully transitioning, uh, who identifies initially as trans feminine, like that's not necessarily true in this case. So I think that, that, yeah, I think it, you know, I agree with John, obviously, you know, I feel like, this is a, a gender of one, and and therefore uh, uh, there are no uh, there are no other headwigs in a way. So, but I think that it's an interesting template to think about the construction of, of gender, of course, and and, uh, and its performances. Um, and then I think what what happens when uh, you get performers in this role is thinking about well, what is the gender of the performer playing the role? How do they identify? You know, and then that kind of factors in. So I think that there's a lot to weed through and wade through uh, with the role. Um, and again, you know, sort of circling back around to all of that is that because the, if we're going to accept the nature of the story, which is kind of like a, a very strange fairy tale, uh, you know, that this character is forced into a situation, uh, has to reckon with that, and then through that actually finds themselves in a way. Um, and and starts to kind of heal and acknowledge who they who they are who they could be. I think that's like a, a beautiful journey. And I think the unsettledness of that journey, the restlessness of that journey, um, makes it, I think, still a beautifully revolutionary statement about fluidity and about not accepting categories and and you know, being your own unicorn, you know? So, uh, so yeah. So I think there's something kind of like, I think that's why the show is very emotional uh, for people and why the headheads exist, you know, sort of the fans that follow it everywhere. It's like, there is something in the material that is truly aching, you know? Um, but it's, but it's also kind of getting at something very powerful about forced identities and forced binaries and, and 
looking at the possibility and potentiality of, well, maybe there's just like, what if we break through all of that um, and not decide to choose, but, but live our own reality or whatever that reality may be. So I think there's something super powerful. And I think still, even today, uh, transgressive about that idea that this show, you know, in its own uh, playful way, taps into. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that moment is so fascinating when Hedwig's husband leaves her after they go to, I think it's Kansas together, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> After he leaves, there's nothing really preventing Hedwig from, you know, going back to presenting as male. And yet that's not the choice that she takes, but she does kind of further transform. There's the first transition that's sort of, uh, you know, on the level of biology and, on, and you know, kind of be- she becomes this, this housewife in a trailer park. But then right. there's also the second transformation into the Hedwig that we see at the beginning of the show, which is this sort of, you know, New York dolls version of punk mm-hmm. drag, um, right. which is, is a form of self-creation. You know, even if the original, the sort of first transition is, is somewhat coerced, the second one right. feels very much like this is now her. Correct. Yeah. There's choice. There's a choice there. And, and I think the choice is the beginning of, of the journey, right. For, for Hedwig to figure herself out. Um, yeah, which is very exciting, uh, I think. And there's also, you know, I think with all of this, we're we're looking at things like marginality and and who gets to be marginalized and why and and where does queerness exist and um, what is the notion of the outsider in society and and one of the smart again one of the really brilliant and smart things that John does in the libretto um, and in Stephen with the lyrics is that this is a character that's continually marginalized so marginalized by experience and marginalized by being you know in terms of being in america from another country you know at at this moment you know white a white character so that's one of the things that doesn't trouble it so much but still i think the the unseated and unrooted gender of this figure presenting as female but actually being unicorn uh uh kind of like just destabilizes everything. So I love the sense of disorientation, dislocation that it allows for um, honoring and uplifting marginalized spaces and respecting their, I would say, alienness. In, 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 and I mean that in a positive sense. Yeah, she even compares herself to the Berlin Wall, saying, like, I'm, I'm between East and West, between man and woman. Right. Um, I'd love to talk about the song, The Origin of Love, which you briefly mm-hmm. mentioned. Uh, this song is a sort of, uh, you know, unfaithful uh, recreation of Aristophanes' <laughs> uh, uh, sort of story about how, where love comes from, where this desire for human connection comes from. Um, could you talk a little bit about what makes this song so special in the context of the show? Sure. I mean, it's... Uh... It's the first big ballad. So just on a technical level, <laughs> you know, after we've been kind of like, oh, what's going on with this play? Um, we suddenly get a moment to sit with Hedwig. Uh, and, and it's presented, of course, it's, this, it's very funny. I mean, it's uh, uh, the and bedtime beautiful. story. 
and beautiful. Like, but you know, the, yeah. the funny part of it is, this is what my mom used to read to me when, when I would go to bed. And I'm like, yeah. really, your mom read you the symposium? Like that's awesome. Uh, so, so, um, so I think the 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 frame for it is is like, oh, you know. It's just this kind of household I was in, right? So, uh, and I think through that, it's it's the idea of where are where are these the different sort of the male male, female female, thirds, and then you know uh, male and female, right? And so that that's how it's presented, right? The children of the sun, the children of the moon, the children of the earth, uh, and then through that, this notion. What I think is interesting is that the symposium is used as a way to talk about. Uh, how love can take you anywhere, which is also a line from the show uh, later on. Uh, and it's also about like, how do we know what the origin is? I mean, the, one of the beautiful things, of course, is that all in the, in the origin of love, the figures, these sort of children, these different children are looking for their other half, right? So, and of course, what happens? They've in the been play split is that, in half by Zeus. They've been split in, by, split in half by Zeus, right? So, with his scissors uh, made out of lightning bolts. Of course, just of course yes. they are, and so and so, um, and then and then it's like, well, Zeus, Zeus, God figure, why was Zeus doing that? You know, I think there's an interrogation around the divinity of of asking humans to go on this journey, um, and will we find love through that? And I think that that's that's sort of a fascinating and and strange and haunting and it kind of eternal the eternal quest i think of Mm -hmm. folks trying to to sort of figure out will they find the the half that was separated from them um and i think that that within that in terms of the dramaturgy of the show is also that this is a figure that is also looking for their other self for the self that they left behind for the self that they may might have become so there's it, the other half is not just a romantic coupling, uh, but also your own kind of personality. How how can you find your wholeness, your completeness? Um, and I think that, that that's actually a very it's one of the things about that song that if you return to it as a listener, uh, kind of hits home. Uh, and actually sets the ground for the rest of the play. The, the song comes fairly early in the show, uh, but actually it dips, it drops us down right. It kind of clues us in to know that we're not just in for tear me down, things are messed up, here we go, it's awful. Oh, but actually, let me tell you about how this all started and how maybe all of us have started. And I think it opens up to talk about all of humanity in such a beautiful way and using symposium as the method, right? It's sort of using it as the, as the vehicle, uh, sort of a, a, a slightly warped retelling of the symposium, but a beautiful one nonetheless. And I think also in the original production, uh, the use of animation and that and kind of crude, kind of uh, crude drawings uh, uh, so that it's sort of evoking the kind of images that, that Hedvig sees in their mind. Um, just just put it in the realm of like, oh, we are all dreaming this story, uh, and this story is all of us. So I sort of love that about the show, and I think that it's kind of um, uh, it also gets us. I mean, you know, part of this musical is a 
uh, dramaturgically is also a creation myth. So how do we, where do we come from? How do we create? Who do we become? Yeah. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating about it, this is that the bedtime story could have been Socrates' speech from the symposium, which is all about how love is this beautiful, ennobling thing that helps us to perceive the form of the good. But the the story that's chosen is Aristophanes' story, which locates desire and love in this sort of primordial wound, which uh, right. feels feels very uh, headwiggish, perhaps. Yeah, and it's also like. Uh... This might sound a little bit odd, but I think it it kind of validates the the dramaturgy of the play, right? You know, it sort of says, "Let me <laughs> let me use Aristophanes to kind of um, seat this material," uh, mm-hmm. which which I think that for an audience, you know, it's funny. It's like I sometimes every time I've seen the show, I've wondered like. I wonder if people know who Aristophanes, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder, like, I think it also opens up this idea of like, uh, what are, what are the figures that we're calling forth, uh, to enable our storytelling? Um, and in this case, uh, going back to the ancient Greeks, uh, but the choice of Aristophanes, you know, also being, uh, the mischievous and provocative choice, uh, as well. So I think that that's, that that is also like a layer, uh, uh, an intelligent layer uh, that's sort of grafted onto the dramaturgy. Yeah. Um, finally, I'd love to ask you about what do you see as the influence of Hedwig over the theater of the last twenty years? Are there are there children of Hedwig that you can identify um, roaming around uh, Broadway or off Broadway or off off Broadway? Children of Hedwig. Let me think for a second. I mean, you know, Lord. Uh, I think in a weird way, I mentioned it in the book sort of slightly, but uh, and it functions completely differently uh, from a dr- dramaturgical standpoint. But uh, I always think of Passing Strange as somehow being related. <laughs> um, mm. Only because I feel like, A, it's another rock and roll show. It's also dealing with the pansexuality. Um, it's also partly set in a kind of demi-monde uh, setting. Um, it's also investigating identity uh, and and origins um, and what those mean. Um, you know, I think the thing about Passing Strangers is that it's so much about stew, right? It's autobiographical. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I think it, it sort of, I think in some ways has unfortunately... I think in the history of American, uh, American musical theater um, is a piece that because of its autobiographical nature has not allowed it to actually have more, more, uh, more productions, more, more reconfigured productions in a way, because Mm -hmm. the original Broadway production got shut down. Once while they were trying to install a new person to play the lead, um, and to take on Stu's, Stu's onstage per- persona. Um, so I, so I always think about a missed opportunity there. And I think that I wonder what would have happened if we brought that show back, um, and how we would look at the, the pansexuality in that show now, especially through the lens of uh, race. Um, 
Uh, I'm trying to think of like other shows. I mean, certainly Strange Loop. I don't think Strange Loop could exist in the way that it does uh, without Hedvig kind of knocking down some doors. Uh, and again, doing it in a very different way, right? As sort of mm-hmm. doing it through through race and performance and and the history <laughs> the history of musicals and who's allowed to say what, when, and why, and um, where do you exist and who is marginalized and which voices and which bodies. Um, so I feel like Strange Loop benefits from Hedvig being there before in its own yeah. in its own strange way. Um, I haven't seen, you know, I'm trying to think of like shows that deal with, I've been a kind of a mildly aching, maybe I'll have to write it, uh, mildly <laughs> aching for a show that looks at, um, uh, well, two things. I've been mildly aching for shows that look at the punk rock movement through the female lens. Um, I feel like that's a story that's not really told. Um, at least in theater that much. Uh, so I've, I've sort of wondered what happened to that story since it's very much part of history. Uh, and I've also thought about like, uh, you know, the character of Itzhak, uh in Hedwig is such an interesting character, multi, multi, multi-identified. Um, but the idea of a drag king, the idea of the drag king persona leading a show hasn't, hasn't really happened yet. So I'm waiting for that to happen. <laughs> waiting for that to happen uh you know because it also i think that it's kind of like a a realm especially at the level that hedwig functioned at i mean it's certainly originally i can't imagine that when they opened 1998 that they thought it was going to be a blockbuster do you know what i mean because it's a weird show to begin with it's a weird show you know it's like it's weird show and it's like you don't know that thing is going to fly and it will catch on um, but it did, right? So, so again, a, a bar has been set, something's been laid down. So it feels like uh, more could be built on top of that. And um, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me that that I feel like truly, uh, again, super unsettled pieces haven't kind of emerged entirely from that from that particular uh, musical dramaturgical. Uh, bedrock in a way yeah. but some have i feel like one i don't know if there's an influence story to be told he, here but i certainly feel like um when i was in college and i saw taylor mack show lily's revenge i certainly had a frame of reference for that show because i was sort of like oh it's sort of like hedwig it's sort of like uh right. rocky horror and it's obviously yep. a very different thing and it's so steeped in you know, critical theory and yeah. Elizabethan comedy and all the things that that show uh, is, yeah. is steeped in. But it does feel like Hedwig is perhaps one of the uh, ingredients in that stew. Yeah, and definitely a gateway. Like for, for people that were like, how do I how, how do I apprehend what Taylor Mac is doing? Oh, well, I have a, you know, <laughs> if you don't yeah. know anything, you could at least go. My, one of my gateways is, one of my gateway drugs sure. has been Hedvig, right? So so you can sort of walk into that world and go, and go, oh, I think I sort of know what Taylor is up to, even though it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. And those are important. I feel like, especially for young people trying to find their way in the world of culture. I mean, having those shows that can kind of open that door is, is, is essential. It's huge. It's huge. Well, Caridad Fitch, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I enjoyed your book so much and, and I, I hope this podcast will encourage uh, people to, to check it out. 
please check it out. It's also like a deeply personal book. I keep saying that, you know, so I'm just going to say once more time <laughs> uh, yes. for the record that it's, that it is kind of like one of the things I wanted to do with the book is um, make it feel like you're reading a little, little novella. Um, mm-hmm. So it's partly about me as viewer and audience in person and also a certain time in New York, uh, how New York has changed. It's about the downtown and it's about, uptown and what those, those what those things mean and uh and it's also about the reclamation of the commons so i feel like inside of it are these other things that it's not just a, a dry book about like let's look at every song in the show and let's look at you know even though i do right. do that yeah so yeah but it's it's very much your experience of the musical is is foregrounded Oh, absolutely. And also Bowie's passing and the specter of right. Bowie looms in largely over the book. And how could it not? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And we'll, we'll be sure to have you on, uh, you know, the, the next time you have a book project, uh, you know, next week or two weeks from then or <laughs> something. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I, you know, I'll slow down. I think I have I, I might have a no, book, but no, it won't don't. happen until next year. It won't happen until next okay. year. Fantastic. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for your time.